welcome to the A to Z of Doctor Who, and this time around I'm going to be sort of poking fun in the general direction of the letter M. I'm Ian Martin, and this is M. Masterchef. Welcome to Celebrity Masterchef with me, the bald one who looks like Zippy, and me, the little short, bleary-eyed one who's always drunk. Today we have six great competitors all serving us their finest food and bidding to become Celebrity Masterchef. Roger has prepared Imam Bayeldi, a Turkish dish, and it's silky smooth, suave and elegant on the palate. He served it with a spinach fataya, which has a really dark edge to it. This is great, but I can't help feeling he asked his wife to do it for him. Jeffrey's had a bit of a torrid time. He was preparing a simple roast belly of pork, but I think it's been terribly overdone. It's blackened, it's burnt, it smells acrid, and there's just all bones everywhere. What do you think? I think someone's pissed in my trousers. Anthony has cooked us a poached egg, served with beans on toast, and he's invoiced us for £12 each for this. I can't help noticing the egg is a bit shiny and thin on top, but he's tried to disguise this with a clever weave of bean juice. It's a mean-spirited and tight-fisted effort, and his seasoning just goes way over the top. Eric has cooked us a great big cheeseburger with Thousand Island dressing. Frankly, it's too bloody American, and massively overdressed for the occasion. John has cooked us a burger and some chips, a whole roast chicken, a loaf of bread and some pasta and served it together in a huge mess. It's hearty, it's wholesome, it's filling, but ultimately it's just a bit too much and it is just repeated on me. Oh dear. What's Michelle prepared us? Say something rice. Boiled rice with pineapple and strawberry jelly. It's elegant, it's amusing. Oddly, it works well, but it's just a little bit too crazy for me. So who wins from our lineup of master chefs? The Doctor. Always the bloody Doctor. Matrix V. Time Lord Society is the oldest and most scientifically advanced in existence, and their computational matrix, which can be physically penetrated, contains the wisdom of every dead Time Lord, so it must be really sciency and high-tech and amazing, unless you're inside it trying to murder the Doctor, of course, because the best weapons it can muster are shitty-looking toy trains, blowpipes, piss-poor, quick-sandy beaches, which even Colin Baker can survive unscathed. Matthew Waterhouse Right. Some people will tell you that Matthew Waterhouse, a young actor plucked from the postroom and thrust into the limelight as new companion Adric in season 18 of Doctor Who, was the worst companion ever portrayed by the second worst actor in the whole of classic Who, who was uniformly terrible in every single scene he ever had, and that the moment of his shocking death in Earth-shocking death was the absolute high point of the 1980s show output. In many ways, making fun of the... uh, 
actor, would be akin to shooting fish in a barrel, and I'm not low enough to mock an actor who's not here and can't defend himself. Why is he never around when you want him? Mordrin undead. Nowadays, writers on Doctor Who are often given a shopping list full of items to incorporate into their stories. For example, dinosaurs, spaceships, or dinosaurs on spaceships. Imagine the look on the face of Peter Grimwade when asked to deliver this story from season 20, which was required to include a new companion's introduction, the return of the Brigadier, the Silver Jubilee, a second version of the Brigadier from six years earlier, a fat kid in glasses, the Black Guardian from the Key to Time trilogy, some guff about aliens stealing regenerations, and a British public school. There are some undeniably great moments in this mishmash of a story, but in hindsight you can see why a growing number of viewers were quietly switching off during the 1980s. Melkor when the Master turned his TARDIS into the statue of Melkor in the Keeper of Traken, he thought he'd found the perfect hiding place. However, the main problem with this funky bit of chameleon circuit mojo is that there could only have been one possible area round the back of Melkor that could have acted as any sort of door, and it was an undignified return for the Doctor's arch-nemesis to have to climb in and out of Melkor's arse every time he needed some milk or a packet of Benson's. McCoy, Sylvester. Born Patrick, Percy, John, Paul, Ringo, George, O'Brien, Bannerhilk, Kent Smith, this Scottish actor chose to work under a far more normal-sounding stage name and came up with Sylvester McCoy. Normal-sounding is not a quality which uh, typifies his performance as the Seventh Doctor because no one can ever understand a bloody word he says. The McCoy era had almost everything going for it. A new young script editor with a clear vision who amassed a pool of talented writers who breathed new life into the format. In The Doctor and Ace, you had a genuinely lovely pair of heroes who enjoyed hanging out together, a rarity in the 1980s. And the various guest stars and supporting cast gave it their all too. From the Candyman to the Destroyer to the Psychic Circus, you had monsters and villains who really belonged in the universe we were all exploring. And in the Dark Doctor trope, you had the beginnings of a really exciting new take on the central character. The only thing missing from the McCoy era, sadly, was an audience. Michael Grade. What a Moffat, Peter. The actor Peter Moffat wanted a more exciting and dynamic stage name and chose the distinctive and memorable Peter Davison. Davison portrayed the fifth Doctor, and for many people of my age and fighting weight, Davison was our Doctor. Perfect for kids, as he charged breathlessly about the place, getting increasingly cross as things inevitably went wrong for him. The Fifth Doctor's companions were a motley crew comprising a stowaway who wasn't very good, a shouty Australian feminist with cracking legs, a sweet but dull sciencey one, a shifty redhead, and finally Perry, a nasal American who somehow made viewers across the land suddenly pay extremely close attention whenever she was on screen. 
Davison's doctor, modelled on the idea of a younger William Hartnell, could be moody and petulant, although always brave and heroic. For three glorious seasons of my childhood, he blazed across the screen with the best version of the theme music and everything. But now, he's mostly remembered for the decorative vegetable, playing cricket, and the fucking murker. Moffat, Stephen. Stephen Moffat is one of the greatest minds to have ever worked on Doctor Who. For sheer inventiveness, he's up there with Douglas Adams and Robert Holmes. And for his work on coupling alone, he demonstrated he's world-class in the pantheon of television writers. Detracted by many thick people for being too clever, his seasons of the show have been innovative, exciting, unpredictable, and turned the show into a global success with Matt Smith. That said, some people maintain he should have left when Smith did, and that he only stayed on against his will because there was no one else to take the show over and he didn't want Mark Gatiss to get his hands on it. They cite Series 7 for being a bit forgettable, and Series 9 for being impenetrable, and lots of progressive, intelligent and forward-looking Who fans puke every time they're reminded that the Master is currently a woman. But to these people I say simply this, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. The Moffat era has been bloody amazing, which is why I am not going to make jokes about any of it. Although if he buggers off before introducing the Minister of War or explaining who Gus is, I'll hunt the bugger down myself. Mrs Moynihan A mean-spirited primary school supply teacher who regularly told me that wittering on about Doctor Who was a waste of my time and I'd never amount to anything. Just because she was to be proven correct doesn't mean she wasn't a hateful cow. 